Section 18 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Rose. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. Great Navigators of the 18th Century, by Jules Verne. First Part, Chapter 4, Part 2 Captain Cook's Second Voyage, 2A A Fresh Visit to Tahiti and the Friendly Islands Exploration of New Hebrides Discovery of New Caledonia and Pine Island Stay in Queen Charlotte's Sound, South Georgia Accident to the Adventure after leaving these islands on the 12th of April and sailing for Tahiti, Cook fell in five days later with the Pomantu archipelago. He landed on the Teoyukea island of Byron. The inhabitants who had cause to complain of earlier navigators received the advances of the English coldly. The latter could only obtain about two dozen coconuts and five pigs, which appeared plentiful in this island. In another settlement, a more friendly reception was met with. The natives embraced the newcomers and rubbed their noses in the same fashion as the New Zealanders. Oedidi bought several dogs, the long and white hair of whose skins serves as an ornament for caresses in his native land. Forster relates, The natives told us that they broke up scurvy grass, mixed it with shellfish, and threw it into the sea on the approach of a shoal of fish. This bait intoxicated the fish for a time, and when they came to the surface it was easy to take them. The captain afterwards saw several other islands of this immense archipelago, which were similar to those he had left, especially the pernicious islands, where Rajawine had lost his sloop, the African, and to which Cook gave the name of Polisare Islands. He then steered for Tahiti, which the sailors, certain of the goodwill of the natives, regarded as a home. The resolution cast anchor in Matavai Bay on the 22nd of April, and their reception was as friendly as had been anticipated. A few days later, King Otu and several other chiefs visited the English and brought them a present of ten or a dozen large pigs and some fruit. Cook's first idea was to remain in this spot only just long enough for Mr. Wales, the astronomer, to take observations, but the abundance of provisions induced him to prolong his stay. On the morning of the 26th, the captain, who had been to Opare with some of his officers to make a formal visit to the king, observed a fleet of more than 300 pirogues drawn up in order on the shore. They were all completely equipped. At the same time, a number of warriors assembled on the beach. The officers' suspicions were excited by this formidable armament, collected in one night, but they were reassured by the welcome they received. This fleet consisted of no less than sixty large double pirogues, decorated with flags and streamers, and a hundred and seventy smaller ones, intended for the transport of provisions, and the flotilla was manned with no fewer than 7,760 men, warriors or paddlers. 
The sight of this fleet, says Forrester, increased our ideas of the power and wealth of the island. The entire crew was astonished. When we reflect upon the implements possessed by this people, we can but admire the patience and toil necessary to cut down these enormous trees, separate and polish the branches, and then to carry the heavy constructions to such perfection. These works are produced by them by means of a stone hatchet and saw, a piece of coral, and the hide of whales. The chiefs, and all who occupied a prominent fighting rank, were dressed in military style, that is to say, in a quantity of stuffs, turbans, helmets, and breastplates. The height of some of the helmets was most embarrassing to the wearers. The entire equipment appeared more appropriate for scenic effect than suitable for a battlefield. But, in any case, it added to the grandeur of the display, and the warriors did not fail to show themselves with a view to the most striking effect. Upon reaching Matavai, Cook learned that this formidable armament was destined for attack upon Emio, whose chief had revolted against the Tahitan yoke and become independent. During the following days, the captain was visited by some of his old friends. All showed a desire to possess red feathers, which were of considerable value. One only attached more importance to a glass bead or a nail. The Tahitans were so impressed that they offered in exchange the strange mourning garments, which they had refused to sell during Cook's first voyage. These garments are made of the rarest productions of the islands and the surrounding sea, and are worked with care and great skill, and no doubt are of great value to themselves. We bought no less than ten, which we brought to England. Oedidi, who had taken good care to procure some feathers for himself, could indulge in any caprice he liked. The natives looked upon him as a prodigy, and listened eagerly to his tales. The principal personages of the island, and even the king, sought his society. He married a daughter of the chief of Matavai, and brought his wife on board. Everyone was delighted to make him a present. Finally, he decided to remain at Tahiti, where he had found his sister married to a powerful chief. In spite of the thefts, which more than once caused unpleasantness, the English procured more provisions on their stay in this port than ever before. The aged Oberia, who was like a queen in the islands during the stay made by the Dauphine in 1767, herself brought pigs and fruits in the secret hope of obtaining red feathers, which had so great a success. Presents were liberally given, and the Indians were amused with fireworks and military maneuvers. Just before he left, the captain witnessed a curious naval review. O2 ordered a sham fight, but it lasted so short a time that it was impossible to observe the movements. The fleet was to commence hostilities five days after Cook's departure, and he would have much liked to have waited for it, but, fearing the natives might suspect him of an attempt to overcome both conquered and victors, he determined to leave. The resolution had scarcely left the bay when one of the gunners, seduced by the delights of Tahiti, and possibly by the promises of King O'Too, who, no doubt, thought a European might be of use to him, threw himself into the sea, but he was soon retaken by a boat launched by Cook in his pursuit. 
Cook very much regretted the fact that discipline obliged him to act in this way. The man had no relations or friends in England, and, had he requested permission to remain in Tahiti, it would not have been refused. On the 15th, the resolution anchored in Owera Harbor, in Huahine Island. The old chief Orea was one of the first to congratulate the English upon their return, and to bring them presents. The captain presented him with red feathers, but the old chief appeared to prefer iron, hatchets, and nails. He seemed more indolent than upon the previous visit. His head was weaker, no doubt owing to his immoderate love for an intoxicating drink extracted from pepper by the natives. His authority was evidently despised, and Cook sent in pursuit of a band of robbers who had not refrained from pillaging the old king himself, and who had taken refuge in the center of the island. Aurea showed himself grateful for the consideration the English had always shown him. He was the last to leave the vessel before she sailed on the 24th of April, and when Cook said that they should never meet again, he shed tears and replied, Send your children here, we will treat them well. On another occasion, Aurea asked the captain where he should be buried. At Stepney, said Cook, Aurea begged him to repeat the word until he could pronounce it. Then a hundred voices cried at once, Stepney morai no tut. Stepney, the grave of Cook. In giving this reply, the great navigator had no prevision of his fate or of the difficulty his fellow countrymen would have in finding his remains. Oedidi, who at the last moment had accompanied the English to Huahine, had not met with so cordial a welcome as at Tahiti. His riches had strangely diminished, and his credit suffered in consequence. The narrative says, He soon proved the truth of the proverb that a man is never a prophet in his own country. He left us with regrets, which proved his esteem for us, and when the moment of separation arrived, he ran from cabin to cabin, embracing everyone. It is impossible to describe the mental anguish of the young man when he left. He gazed at the vessel, burst into tears, and crouching in despair in the bottom of his pirogue, we saw him again stretching out his arms to us as we left the reef. Cook reconnoitred Hove Island, so called by Wallace, on the 6th of June. It is named Mohipa by the natives. A few days later, he found several uninhabited islets surrounded by a chain of breakers, to which he gave the name Palmerston, in honor of one of the lords of the Admiralty. Upon the 20th, a steep and rocky island was discovered, crowned with large woods and bushes. The beach was narrow and sandy, and several natives of very dark complexion were seen upon it. They made menacing demonstrations, and were armed with lances and clubs. As soon as the English landed, they retired. Champions, however, advanced and endeavored to provoke the strangers, assailing them with a storm of arrows and stones. Sparman was wounded in the arm, and Cook just escaped being struck by a javelin. A general volley soon dispersed these inhospitable islanders, and the uncivil reception which was thus accorded well deserved the name bestowed upon their land of Savage Island. 
Four days later, Cook reached the Tonga archipelago once more. He stopped this time at Namuka, called Rotterdam by Tasman. He had scarcely cast anchor before the ship was surrounded by a crowd of pirogues, filled with bananas and every kind of fruit, which were exchanged for nails and old pieces of stuff. This friendly reception encouraged the naturalists to land and penetrate to the interior in search of new plants and unknown productions. Upon their return they enlarged upon the beauty of this picturesque and romantic country, and upon the affability and cordiality of the natives. In spite of it, however, various thefts continued to take place, until a more important larceny than usual obliged the captain to resort to severity. A native who opposed the seizure of two pirogues by the English as hostages until the stolen arms were restored, was wounded severely by a gunshot. During this second visit, Cook bestowed the name of Friendly Islands upon this group, no doubt with a sarcastic meaning. Nowadays, they are better known by the native name of Tonga. The indefatigable navigator continued his route in a westward direction, passed in succession Le Pru, Aurora, Whitsunday, and Malikolo Islands, to which archipelago Bougainville had given the name of the Grand Cyclades. Cook gave his usual order to enter into friendly and commercial relations with the inhabitants. The first day passed quietly, and the natives celebrated the visit of the English by games and dancing, but on the morrow an incident occurred which led to a general collision. A native, who was refused access to the ship, prepared to launch an arrow at one of the sailors. His fellow countrymen at first prevented him. At the same moment, Cook appeared on deck, his gun in his hand. His first step was to shout to the native, who again aimed at the sailor. Without replying, the native was about to let his arrow fly at him when a shot anticipated and wounded him. This was the signal for a general discharge of arrows, which struck on the vessel and did but little damage. Cook then ordered a gun to be fired over the native's heads with a view to dispersing them. A few hours later, the natives again surrounded the ship and returned to their barter as if nothing had happened. Cook took advantage of these friendly indications to land an armed detachment for wood and water. Four or five natives were collected on the beach. A chief, leaving the group, advanced to the captain, holding in his hand, as Cook also did, a green bough. The two branches were exchanged, and peace thus concluded. A few slight presents helped to cement it. Cook then obtained permission to take wood, but not to go far from the shore, and the naturalists, who were anxious to prosecute their investigations in the interior, were brought back to the beach, in spite of their protestations. Iron implements had no value for these people. This made it extremely difficult to obtain provisions. Only a few agreed to exchange arms for stuffs, and exhibited an honesty in their transactions, to which the English were unaccustomed. The exchanges continued after the resolution had set sail, and the natives hurried in their pirogues to deliver the articles for which they had received the price. One of them, after vigorous efforts, 
succeeded in gaining the vessels, carrying his weapons to a sailor who had paid for them and forgotten it. It was so long ago. The native refused the recompense the sailor would have given, making him understand that he had been paid already. Cook gave the name of Port Sandwich to this harbor of refuge, which he left on the morning of the 23rd of July. He was most favorably impressed by the moral qualities of the natives of Malikolo, but by no means in regard to their physical powers. Small and badly proportioned, bronze in color, with flat faces, they were hideous. Had Darwinian theories been in vogue in those days, no doubt Cook would have recognized in them that missing link between man and monkey, which is the despair of Darwin's followers. Their coarse, crinkly black hair was short, and their bushy beards did not add to their beauty. But the one thing which made them most grotesque was their habit of tying a cord tightly across the stomach, which made them appear like great emmets. Tortoiseshell earrings, bracelets made of hog's teeth, large tortoiseshell rings, and a white flat stone which they passed through the cartilage of their nose, constituted their ornaments. Their weapons were bows and arrows, spears and clubs. The points of their arrows, which were occasionally two or three in number, were coated with the substance which the English thought was poisonous, from observing the care which the natives drew them out of a kind of quiver. The resolution had only just left Port Sandwich, when all the crew were seized with colic, vomiting, and violent pains in the head and back. Two large fish had been caught and eaten by them, possibly whilst they were under the influence of the narcotic mentioned above. In every case, ten days elapsed before entire recovery. A parrot and a dog which had also eaten of the fish died next day. Quiros' companions had suffered in the same way, and since Cook's voyage similar symptoms of poisoning have been noticed in these latitudes. After leaving Malikolo, Cook steered for Ambrim Island, which appeared to contain a volcano, and shortly afterwards discovered a group of small islands, which he named Shepherd Islands, in honor of the Cambridge Professor of Astronomy. He then visited the islands of two hills, Montague, Hinchinbrook Islands, and the largest of all, Sandwich Island, which must not be mistaken for the group of the same name. All the islands, lying among and protected by breakers, were covered with rich vegetation and were largely populated. Two slight accidents interrupted the calm on board. A fire broke out, which was soon extinguished, and one of the sailors falling overboard was at once rescued. Coromango was discovered on the 3rd of August. The next day Cook reached its shore, hoping to find a watering place and facility for landing. The greater part of the sufferers from the poisonous fish had not yet recovered their health, and they looked forward to its speedy re-establishment on shore. But the reception accorded to them by the natives, who were armed with clubs, lances, and arrows, seemed wanting in sincerity. Cook was on his guard. Finding that they could not lure the English into landing, the natives endeavored to force them. A chief and several men tried to snatch the oars from the sailors. 
Cook wished to fire his musket, but the priming would not go off. The English were immediately overwhelmed with stones and arrows. The captain at once ordered a general volley. Fortunately, half of the shots missed, or the slaughter would have been terrific. Forster says, these natives appear to be of different race to those living in Malikolo. They speak a different language. They are of medium height, but well-shaped, and their features are not disagreeable. They were bronze in complexion, and they paint their faces black or red. Their hair is somewhat woolly and curly. The few women I saw appeared very ugly. I have seen no pirogues on the, any part of the coast. They live in houses covered with palm leaves, and their plantations are in straight lines and are surrounded by a hedge of reeds. It was useless to make a second attempt to land. Cook, having bestowed the name of Cape Trader upon the scene of the collision, reached an island which he had seen the previous evening, and which the natives called Tana. The highest hill of the same range is of conical shape, says Forrester, with a crater in the center. It is reddish-brown and composed of a mass of burnt stones, perfectly sterile. From time to time it emitted a thick column of smoke like a great tree, increasing in width as it ascended. The resolution was at once surrounded by a score of pirogues, the largest of which contained twenty-five men. The latter sought to appropriate everything within their reach, buoys, flags, the hinges of the rudder which they tried to knock off. They only returned to the shore after a four-pounder had been fired over their heads. The vessel made for the shore, but all the trifles that were distributed could not induce the natives to relinquish their attitude of defiance and bravado. It was clear that the smallest misunderstanding would lead to bloodshed. Cook imagined these people to be cannibals, although pigs, fowls, roots, and fruits abounded. During the stay, prudence prevented anyone leaving the shore. Forster, however, ventured a little way and discovered a spring of water, so hot that he could not hold his finger in it longer than a second. In spite of all their wishes, the English found it impossible to reach the central volcano, which emitted torrents of fire and smoke as high as the clouds, and projected enormously large stones into the air. The number of extinct volcanoes in every direction was considerable, and the soil was decidedly subject to volcanic eruptions. By degrees, though without losing their reserve, the Tanians became more at home with the strangers, and intercourse was less difficult. These people, says Cook, showed themselves hospitable, civil, and good-hearted, when we did not excite their jealousy. We cannot blame their conduct greatly, for after all, from what point of view can they have judged us? They could not possibly know our real intentions. We entered their country, as they dared not oppose us. We endeavored to disembark as friends, but we landed and maintained our superiority by force of arms. Under such circumstances, what opinion could the natives form of us? It doubtless appeared far more plausible that we came to invade their country than that which we visited them as friends. Time only and intimate relations could teach them our good intentions. However that might be, the English were at a loss to guess why the natives prevented their penetrating to the interior of the country. 
Was it owing to a naturally shy nature, or possibly because they were threatened with constant inroads from their neighbors? Their address in the use of arms and their bearing supported this idea, but it was impossible to know with any certainty. As the natives did not value anything the English offered, they did not bring any great quantity of fruits and roots the latter longed for. They would not consent to part with their pigs, even for hatchets, the utility of which they had proved. The productions of the island included breadfruits, coconuts, a fruit like a peach called pare, yams, potatoes, wild pigs, nutmegs, and many others of which Forrester did not know the names. End of section 18. Recording by Bob Rose.